Shalom, everyone, and welcome to this week's uh, webinar series by the ICEJ. I'm David Parsons, one of our vice presidents and senior spokesman for the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem, coming to you from our headquarters here in the Israeli capital. This week, uh, we're still uh, locked in this uh, war with Hamas in Gaza and several other fronts that have heated up over the past four months. Uh, and we're uh, dealing today with a, uh, an important aspect of this conflict, which is all the Christian uh, support and relief efforts that have been coming in to help uh, the state of Israel, the people of Israel face uh, this conflict and the challenges of it, the trauma they've been through since October 7. And helping us with this is my colleague, Nicole Yoder. She's a fellow vice president with the Christian Embassy and in charge of our aid and Aliyah work. Good to have you, Nicole. Good to be here, David. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, today we're going to try and, and give everyone an a, a overview of all the work that we've been doing. Of course, Nicole, we came out of the Feast of Tabernacles last October. Uh, we ended on October 6th. October 7th would have been our first day of rest in, in weeks and weeks, if not months, preparing for the feast. Uh, but then Israel was, was drug into this horrible conflict by the very dark um, uh, Simhat Torah massacres that Hamas carried out on a high Jewish holiday. And we've been going full bore ever since. We got maybe a, a few days off over the Christmas holidays or whatever, but we've really wanted to really uh, step up to the challenge that Israel is facing in many different ways. And I think we'll start out, we're going to be sharing some uh, photos, uh, just to let everyone know, we're, we're going to, um, at first we're going to show a video of just how traumatic the the whole October 7 uh, pogrom was, and then we're going to share some photos and have Nicole talk about, give all the background of all the different aid categories, the war relief efforts that we've been engaged in over the past four months. But first, Nicole, give us a little idea. This video is about uh, your visit to Near Oz, one of the worst hit communities. What happened there and when did y'all visit? Uh, and just give us a little warm up for this clip. So we had the privilege of visiting Near Oz right at the beginning of the year. Um, this is a community of about 400 residents. And of those 400 residents, 100 of them were either killed or captured or went into capture in Gaza and were held as hostages. As we speak today, this is an event for this community that is continuing because they still have 30 of their residents that are still held captive in Gaza. And what happened in this uh, community was the majority of the buildings were burned or destroyed. I think there were maybe about six homes that, that weren't affected in some pretty major way. And we had the opportunity to go and hear from the residents, and that's what this video is all going to be about. Our technical uh, assistant says we better go with the pictures first, but we'll try and get this video for you. We visited uh, Nero's with a solidarity group 
uh, at Envision just uh, a week or so ago. And uh, I tell you, even in the dining hall, the kitchen is charred where they set it on fire. It's still there. The place has it. No one's touched it since October 7. And you just sense the death and destruction there and the Bebus family home. And uh, hopefully we'll try and get that video for you. But we're going to start now with um, uh, something of a slideshow showing you some of the images uh, that give you a better picture, uh, let you see it visually, what all we've been doing. And uh, Nicole, we're starting out here with a photo. This is October 5th, two days before the Hamas massacres uh, along the, the Gaza envelope area. But uh, Jurgen Bueller, our president, and I are up here introducing two gentlemen. This is the mayor of the Sha'ar HaNegev region um, and the former mayor and uh, also former Knesset member, Shai Hermesh. This is Ophir Lipstein. And we were with them at a solidarity rally, 700 Christians from our feast, 50 nations represented. We had a great time. We had no idea what was going to happen two days later, but uh, what do you remember of that day? We had a beautiful, beautiful time uh, with the people in this solidarity event, and then we broke up into two groups. David, I believe you went with one to see the uh, rehabilitation of the forest near Be'eri that the ICEJ is doing, and I took another group of about 350 to visit some of our shelter projects and the border and a special peace fence in Nitiva Asara, right on the northern border. And we heard from the residents there about their lives on the border. We heard about how they were, um, you know, confident to live where they lived, right there on the border. We heard from the security chief who explained to us that he felt that there wasn't necessarily a military solution, that there was more of an economic uh, solution that he felt was the best solution for the, the conflict going across the border there. And then two days later, October 7th hit, and pretty much all the theories and all the things that we heard that day were reevaluated in an instant. Yeah. Now, we have a relationship, especially with uh, Mayor Ophir Lipstein, uh, because we've been putting in bomb shelters and, and uh, firefighting equipment in all the communities all along, along the Gaza border. Uh, but he was the first named casualty of this conflict on that Saturday morning. He stepped out of his home after he heard the, the, some shots, grabbed his weapon, went out, and, and was shot just outside his home. Mm. And, of course, uh, um, Shai Hermesh, Jurgen was talking to him on the phone and saying, are you okay? And we caught up with him uh, about 10 days after, afterwards up in uh, Shefaim, another kibbutz along the Israeli coast. You and I were there. We interviewed Shai. Uh, I tell you, this is his home destroyed. And here he is sitting among the ruins of it with uh, Tefillim, some of his uh, the Jewish prayer paraphernalia. Mm. And I think this is um, sort of a way to introduce what we've done with the evacuee families because they're uh, with Shai at, at Shefaim, this kibbutz near Netanya, where, where all the uh, most of the families uh, that had been evacuated out of Kafar Aza. What, how many families have been evacuated? And uh, what have we been doing to help them? 
Well, we've had uh, some different numbers going around for the evacuees because it's not just the southern region, it's also the northern region, and it was something like 200,000 people between the north and the south of the country that were evacuated from their homes. And this is kind of an undetermined amount of time. When they left, they had no idea when they would be able to return. And, and so they found wherever they could to put them, whether it was in hotels, in uh, kibbutzim around the country. Um, they tried to keep uh, communities together. And so there was a real need. Some people fled like with nothing. They didn't have the, the basically more than the clothes on their back. Um, and, and it was just really uh, an incredible um, uh, shock for everyone. And so what was needed was to help uh, the families, once they had moved with clothing items, with food items, with toys for children, um, you know, we gave gift vouchers and cards out to families that had been, um, uh, you know, needed to be able to go buy basic items. We knew that the kids were in all these hotels, they weren't going to school anymore. And so we needed to, well, we were requested actually to find ways to give them classrooms. And so the ICJ purchased the equipment and tents for 11 classrooms and uh, so that children could go to school because parents needed to regroup. They needed to think what was going to happen for the future. Maybe some of them could still work a little bit from home, but they weren't able to do that because they were looking after their children. Um, they needed to go to therapy and trauma care, some of them. And so there was a need for some sort of normalcy to begin to uh, happen for these families, even in the hotels. And so between those items, um, we, we gave, uh, you know, all kinds of basic aid in this kind of area for the evacuees, activities for children. Um, yeah, uh, along those lines, that was kind of the stuff right in the initial beginning that we were able to do for the evacuees. And, and, and uh, here's uh, Yanni of the aid department, uh, Yanni Tovuk, with some children here. I, I, I had some photos. I, I wasn't able to save them in time, but uh, of handing out toys and things like this. Uh, these tents, and uh, I mean, people have been stuck in hotels, a big family crammed in one, one room, and all through the hotel, the kids are going, they get stir-crazy and cabin fever, and... So we've uh, put up uh, rooms for them to for youth activities uh, and to hold classes, like 11 classrooms for the school year. Yeah. As long as they're staying in that area, they're going to have uh, classrooms that we provide. So this particular room that you're looking at in this picture is just one of the big hotel um, activity spaces, rooms, and the equipment was all purchased by ICEJ, so you could put a kindergarten there. The tents were used for the older kids in other areas. And so, yeah, we got to visit the, the kids. We got to see, um, you know, their kind of a bit of their daily routine. And you're right. The, you know, imagine a whole family in one room. You don't have any privacy. Um, you're separated from maybe the, the use uh, maybe separated from friends who ended up in different hotels, different places, right at a time when they could use support from one another. Um, it was a very challenging time. It is a very challenging time, even until today, although some of that is beginning to shift as some of the communities are switching to intermediary uh, housing. Um, 
Some remain in the hotels even now and may remain there at least until the end of the school year. And some are already starting to move now into temporary housing um, ahead of making decisions of returning to their communities or going elsewhere. Okay. Uh, look, uh, before we go to our next category, this first area is helping all the evacuees that were uh, many, like uh, Shai Hermesh, he fled at uh, two in the morning while there were still terrorists around. It was a bus full from Kafar Aza. Uh, and somehow they got out in the middle of the night after 20 hours of uh, just hanging on to hope in their bomb shelters, but they've been scattered at different hotels and places uh, around the country. And these are kibbutzim. They, they live collectively. They are like one big family, and they try to make decisions collectively. But I think uh, Shai's wife in particular, it would be hard for her to move back there because they're elderly, and she was really shaken up by it but they're making those decisions though so, hey you can see there the the devastation we we visited again just uh, about two weeks ago and nicole it really does leave you with a very heavy heart uh, even now because Absolutely. that that community's hardly been touched since that's right it's it looks exactly the same now as it did then and the families of near o's uh, i think the thing that's really important to understand is even though this all happened October 7th, they're still right in the middle of, this is an ongoing event for them because still 30 of their loved ones and friends and family remain as hostages in Gaza. And they're worried about them and they're concerned. And although they have moved out of hotels now and they've found temporary housing in the center of the country, they're still very up in the air about their future and how they'll rebuild, when they'll rebuild, will they return. Many, many questions remain unanswered. And yet one of the things that we really want to do to help this family is just help them with basic items that are going to help them replace what you saw that they lost mm. um, in their homes and to help them, at least even in this temporary place, to be able to have uh, something to start off with that's going to replace some of the items that they lost. Very practical help. Yeah. Now, you had uh, 20-some uh, farming villages, the Kibbutzim and Moshevim, that were attacked, plus some others in that area, plus the town of Sterot. You're talking over 100,000 people evacuated within, say, seven or eight miles of the Gaza border, and about an equal number from the northern border with Lebanon because of the Hezbollah threat. So you're talking over 200,000 people that have uh, been in limbo largely ever ever since and uh so we already covered some of the things we were doing to help them uh but also uh we started uh a lot of food distribution i can share my screen again we'll go back to some of these images and uh this was helping some of the evacuee children but uh, we're also helping feed them, not only house and, and whatever they could, giving them vouchers to feed themselves, helping the children. But here uh, we're packing, this is at our, uh, packing food at our headquarters. What was this for? Yeah, this is also just uh, donated items and food that we were going to be able to give out to families in need. We also hosted some of the evacuees ourselves. And so um, about 18 People were hosted by ICEJ personally. Uh, we, here in this picture, you see us bringing 
food and water to first responders who were going to be out on the front lines with medical aid and responding to, um, you know, cleaning up the area. So we brought, uh, actually, some of this water is left over from the Feast of Tabernacles because it was happening right after uh, that conference and we had a lot that we could share and we immediately took it to first responders. Um, many families, you know, there was a big call up of reserves. There was many evacuated. People are far from their jobs. Businesses are suffering. There's just so many factors in all of this. And so there's a lot of families who really desperately needed help. And food was one of the most important ways that we could help them just, you know, in a financial way. Yeah, the, el the elderly were afraid to go out. And, uh, and you, you have so many uh, contacts with Israeli social workers, Israeli charities all across the country because you've been with us 20-some uh, years. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you, I, I remember you were just getting inundated with uh, calls and requests. Uh, but we packed some of the food early on at the, our headquarters. But here we started uh, in some other places. This is stuff for the children. Yep, you see toiletries here, toiletries that were being packed, toys for the kids, variety of uh, uh, things that were needed, even for people who were being called up. Um, we had, like you said, very good partners and friends. I got a very urgent call right away from... Um, our friends in the center of the country at Piton Lev, they said, we have, you know, the means to set up a food, you know, packing line and uh, to get food. And we want to get it out to families, but we don't have any way to distribute it. Can you help us? We can't ask very many of our friends for this kind of help, but can you help us with a truck that will help distribute it? And not only did we help them with the truck, which you'll see soon, but we sent our team over there almost every day to help pack items, you know, just basic items, everything from stuff for babies to socks and stuff for people uh, being called up to defend for evacuees, food for families. And the neat thing about this project was we were able to do it with people from all over the country because the whole country was volunteering. And so we were packing thousands of boxes. I think over 14,000 boxes were actually we assisted in packing in addition to helping them get to where they needed to go by providing the, the truck, which you see here, to ensure that the, the, the boxes got to the evacuees, they got to the families in need all over Israel. We, and, we've already uh, leased uh, a uh, refrigerated tr truck for Piton Lab. It's one of the more established Israeli food uh, distribution charities, uh, and the the law now requires, I guess it was under COVID or at some point, you got to have a refrigerated truck if you're uh, distributing perishable food. So we already did that, but with this war, we went and leased another truck, just a basic truck to help them distribute stuff. Yeah, this is dry food goods, so, and all these other items that you see for a variety of uh, purposes. And so it didn't need it to be refrigerated, but actually it wouldn't even get where it was going at all without this truck. And so it was an absolute urgent need. And we were happy to step in and fill that because we knew that uh, this stuff needed to get out there as soon as possible. Okay. And as the needs evolved, we, uh, and, and as our people around the world responded, we've been able to uh, raise funds 
to donate four ambulances. We'll move to another category of medical and emergency equipment and assistance. And this is a, um, it's actually a military grade ambulance that is uh, the Czech branch along with uh, our friends from KKL in Czechoslovakia, in, in the Czech Republic, excuse me, raise money to donate ambulance to Kibbutz Ba'eri and the whole uh, Eshkol region to help serve them because these are ambulances that will go into the area even when it's under fire. Yeah, you know, many ambulances were destroyed. We, When we visited the south, we saw huge piles of over a thousand cars and vehicles that were damaged and burned and destroyed. Uh, many ambulances were destroyed as well as uh, the buildings. And so we saw not only the scope of this conflict was different than what anything we had experienced before, it caught everyone off guard and it was a surprise. And so a lot of equipment was needed that wasn't, we didn't expect, um, you know, we didn't have what to do, how, what the equipment needed to deal with the scale of this kind of a, a tragedy. And so everything from first responders needing, you know, protective vests and helmets, uh, containment supplies, medical kits and ambulances um we we had uh our friends along the border the uh absolute this is uh, this picture is showing you first responders of zaka who go in and and remove the the bodies and make sure that they come to proper burial um or provide medical care um this was a, a ginormous task because we had uh, something over 1200 people killed and that doesn't even include you know, the other defenders who came down into the region, like police and soldiers. And then we also had the terrorists who, who many were killed. And these all needed to be um, brought to burial and, de and dealt with. And so it was just an unexpected, unprecedented need. And so the, they didn't have all the equipment that was needed. And we were really privileged to help provide. Yeah, yeah, these guys are real heroes. They have to go in and collect the bodies, and they, they're religious. They want to, you know, you have to, for Jewish ritual purposes, for burial, you have to have all the body parts you can find. So they're very meticulous, but very brave. They went in under fire while the rockets were still firing, while there were still terrorists in the area. But uh, they didn't have enough equipment, so we got them some helmets here and some... Uh, some bulletproof vests and, and such protective gear for them, and they were very appreciative. Uh, back here on the ambulance, we've um, uh, we've done four ambulances so far. What what uh, what were the others? The other so um, this, like you said, is going to be operated by the military to go into areas where you know under fire. The others are from again Davida Dome and also for Holocaust survivors. Um, with our project in the north of the country as part of a preparation for um, potential conflict on the northern border. And so those are the four ambulances that we were able to provide. Uh, in addition, we've really uh, kind of adopted in a way the first response teams all along the Gaza border area. And this has been going on for a number of years. We, we've been providing uh, essential equipment for them here you see me speaking with the uh, security chief of the Hof Ashkelon region. And we were very privileged. I don't know if you can see it in my hand. I'm holding a communication device and you see it here. 
Uh, this is a different security chief in a different region, but they're all along the, uh, the Gaza border. And basically, these radio devices allow them to communicate and not need to use their cell phones, and they can communicate with a bunch of people at once in their security team, inform and update of uh, crisis events that are happening in real time. And what was so amazing is we had already started to give some of these communication devices previous to the war, because it was such an urgent need anyways, while the region was under often attack from, from Gaza for the rockets and whatnot. And now even more so in an event like this, we learned that the communication devices that we had previously donated helped them alert of the terrorists coming over the border um, in real time. They had like five minutes to get ready, but because of those communication devices allowed them to alert the entire security team all at once, they were able, this um, wonderful man here, Amnon Ziv, told us that he feels like his team was able to save 3,000 lives and maybe even more because of those five or so minutes that they had to prepare. It helped them stop the terrorists being able to go up the coast into Ashkelon. It helped them protect the communities in their region. But there was the one place that didn't have it. And so we're rectifying that right now. And I'm very, very excited. Rafi here, uh, who's, who's got his back to us in this picture, he didn't have those communication devices that day. And there was a lot of confusion about what was happening and the scope and the scale of it. And now these, he's uh, now receiving these devices and we hope that in the future they won't be caught off guard ever again in this way. So it's amazing. <laughs> four new ambulances, a new Metascooter, four medevacs yeah. and defibrillators for yeah. Ashkelon. That's right. I think it's five new firefighting ATVs that also serve uh, in security incidents, warm clothing, tents, uh, yeah. helmets and vests, and these radio transmitters, and also some paramedical equipment, medical kits. Yeah. It was amazing. They explained that the as the rockets continued to fall, uh, they came already for months after the start of the war, Fires were getting started in the fields, and those ATVs, those all-terrain vehicles, were enabling them to go and even under fire and in, uh, you know, dangerous circumstances to be able to put out the fires. Since, uh, you know, in the fields, you can't go with a big truck anyways. You need a smaller vehicle, and this was enabling them to help save the crops. And so those were really, really critical. And, yeah, just uh, undergirding them in every way we could with practical medical communication, firefighting uh, equipment, uh, it's been really important for them. Yeah, and uh, this gentleman, uh, Shmuel Bowman, uh, we've partnered with him for 15 years or so now to do bomb shelters, and, and because of the relationship with these the regional security chiefs and, and their mayors and whatever, we're, we're a, we have a direct relationship with them to really assess what they need and really been helping them uh, tremendously since October 7th. But we'll talk a little more about Shmuel on our work with him and the bomb shelters in just a minute. But uh, the next category is trauma care. And Nicole, I know that um, this is an area that if there's any need, urgent need in Israel, many people wouldn't think of it, but trauma care is, is really, really needed right now. 
Yeah, just yesterday I was in the south of the country and they said that they went, uh, you know, maybe from an average of 320 requests for trauma treatment at this center to 3,600. And basically, there's just a, a real awareness that this is going to follow Israel for a long time. And there is not enough um, trauma therapists and counselors needed for the great demand. And so everything from first responders who were down and saw the terrible sights that day, those who experienced it as they were in their homes and in their safe rooms, even secondary trauma of family members who were worried about their loved ones. We've been providing um, trauma care for first responders in the form of a week of therapy for the Ba'eri team, for other first response teams. We're um, renovating and, and so that there could be a new center for PTSD for civilians and for those who defended Israel. We have two centers, one that are about to open that we helped with establishing. Um, there's just a lot, a lot to do with trauma. But also, in addition, you have your medical teams that were receiving all of the people who were injured and wounded and and so many things that were going on there. and And the medical profession in Israel, thankfully and wonderfully, has both Jewish and Arab uh, workers in it. And the managers in these hospital departments really needed to have their own resilience training in order to help their staff deal with all the stuff that was coming in. And, you know, the, the range of emotions and feelings that they were dealing with within their communities about all that was going on. And so this class here is a resilience training course where these managers will go back to their um, departments in the different hospitals around Israel and train their teams, both Jewish and Arab medical staff, to work effectively and efficiently and well, and to be able to deal with their own trauma and emotion in the midst of this crisis. Yeah, the Israeli hospitals have been a model of coexistence between Jews and Arabs, professionals, doctors and nurses and all, uh, and a lot of pressure and tension in the workplace since October 7. But this is uh, meant to help them deal with all that. And uh, a lot of the, like say in Beersheba, the hospital there, half their employees were moved, they were evacuated somewhere else and can't come to work. So they're short-staffed, or some of them were called up for reserve duty, and and you're dealing with patients who also have a husband fighting in Gaza, and they got to give birth to some lady to a, another child, and she's already having to take care of all the other children by herself, and really crazy. And even the trauma counselors got to the point where they needed uh, some help too. It's really an area that we have to this is going to be with us for a while. We need to continue working in it. Now we come to uh, the bomb shelters. We've been doing this for around 15 years. Over 200 of these portable bomb shelters near Gaza, up on the uh, on Lebanon border. But since October uh, 7, uh, how many more have we done of these? And, and uh, what about these existing shelters in some of these towns that are really in poor shape? So we've done about 210 portable shelters in the north and south of Israel, and 12 of those are just since the 7th of October. Some were being literally delivered today up into the Golan Heights, which is very exciting. 
And we say a big thank you to our friends for contributing for that to happen. Uh, and by the way, speaking of trauma centers, this is a trauma center up in the Golan Heights that is on the northern border, an under attack area. And they're welcoming people from the south for treatment up in the north in the Golan, um, who were in the festival in different places and are, are traumatized. So it's just all the projects kind of come together in the end. But these underground shelters up on the northern border, there's communities right on the border that are basically were found to be completely and utterly unprepared in the event of a war to happen with Lebanon. And the state comptroller said, you guys got to deal with this. And it turns out that they didn't really have the funding to deal with it. And so we selected a couple of communities that we've been particularly helping to renovate their underground community public shelters for their community. And this is a, a shelter in Malot Tarshicha, a Jewish and Arab uh, municipality, shared municipality, where um, basically we helped renovate our, it's still in process, we're not quite finished yet, but we're helping to renovate all the public shelters in this town. And it's a community that is not evacuated, and yet it's only, uh, ooh, I think it's about nine kilometers from the border, so it's it's definitely up there in a, a vulnerable area, and uh, it's just a huge pr uh, privilege. I think we've done now about 146 underground public shelter renovations. Actually, some of them are also uh, apartment renovations, so underground uh, uh, shelter renovations for apartments in another city in Shlomi, but about 146 underground shelters now that we've uh, renovated. You know, Shlomi is uh, 9,000 people right along the border uh, up north with Lebanon, and we did, uh, I think, 70-some uh, of the public shelters there, and then in Ma'alo, Tarshiha, uh, 60 some plus some others but this is uh really in bad shape here it is the entrance that after we've uh, uh you know been through and renovated it upgraded it uh the here it's got new air conditioners new fan ventilation system it's got wi-fi on the wall it's got pumps to help pump water out we went in some old shelters that weren't renovated yet and you couldn't you couldn't breathe you couldn't stay in there five seconds uh even if if rockets were flying you just couldn't do it it was the stench was so bad uh but you see uh all through these shelters it looks brand new and you know really comfortable for the people here's a delegation from uh just two weeks ago up on the northern border two weeks ago today two, two thursdays ago when we went up and these are uh representing some of the donor nations that have helped us with all these uh, shelters. Yeah, if you go into a place that's moldy and it has water, standing water in it, uh, because that's what happens in these underground shelters if you don't have a proper pump system, you just can't be in there. And today in the city of Milot, there are people putting mattresses down and staying in these shelters already because they're concerned to be in their homes. And so it's tremendously important. And this is the mayor, Gab Gabriel Gabi, uh, I forget his name right now, but uh, he uh, um, is the mayor of Shlomi. And uh, really, uh, he, he says his people won't come back until they deal with the threat of Hezbollah, not just the rockets, but the threat of coming over the border and, and killing, massacring, kidnapping, just like Hamas did in the south on October 7th. 
and uh, but he's back in Slomi toughing it out. It was nice to meet him that day. Yeah, he has people in his community that are literally in the shadow on, at the bottom of the hill with a, yeah. a you know a terrorist checkpoint or a terrorist outlook point just right up the hill from them. So that's, yeah. it's very concerning. They're very very close to the border. Yeah. And uh, uh, there were around 10% of the people, some 700, who have, have come back to keep their businesses open, to keep the town running as best they can. But uh, they say the only reason they can come back is because we've renovated these shelters for them. They have a place to run. And they've been hit several times, uh, even last the Passover, almost a year ago, when a rocket barrage hit the town, but many times during this current war. And uh, our last, uh, one of our last categories, helping Holocaust survivors very quickly. What have we done here? With Holocaust survivors, we've been preparing. You know, we have our home for Holocaust survivors up in Haifa. Been preparing that whole area in case of a war in the north, putting in a new generator, uh, um, stocking up on extra food items, not just for the home, but for other Holocaust survivors in the area who needed a special assistance even in recent months. Um, also making sure that we're upgraded with shelters in the home itself so that people have somewhere to go in the case of, uh, you know, uh, up, upscaling of the crisis on the northern border. And so basic uh, assistance for survivors for their uh, food needs and also making sure that we have a way to take in those we need to take in. And this ambulance that we bought for me not only served the Haifa home, but also other survivors in the Haifa northern area, getting to the hot doctor and all. That's right. We have also a hotline for Holocaust survivors that they can call if they need help in various ways. And this ambulance is going to help. Um, you know, there's just all kinds of reasons why somebody might need an ambulance among the Holocaust survivors. And they can't afford necessarily um, to have the service maybe or um yeah just a lot of different uh special needs among the residents and this uh, ambulance is going to enable them to get where they need to go to get the care they need and to do it really fast and efficiently mm -hmm. okay uh, look our our work among holocaust survivors been going on for about 12 14 years now, a special effort uh, because so many are, are passing away. We want to care for them before they pass from this world. But uh, with this war, it's brought back bad memories and all. And we've really uh, had to stay at their side, especially at our home for Holocaust survivors, the 60-some residents there. Okay, and our last category is good old hands-on volunteering to go out and help uh, and here, uh, our colleague, uh, one of our fellow vice presidents, Barry Dennison, is helping with a cookout down in the Jordan Valley for uh, for guys who were uh, on the front lines of the battle. Uh, a good good old cookout, but also some of our staff. There you are with Yanni, some of the other staff, Haifa and Ryan, uh, out there picking fruit, uh, or or uh, also sweet potatoes. Good old yams here. Yeah. And uh, this, the, it, it's actually a lot of fun, but it's hard work, but it's very important. I tell you, you know, not only did all the many of the foreign workers or most of the foreign workers left the country, many also were taken hostage. Um, people were evacuated. You suddenly didn't have people to work the fields. And it's another inspiration to see uh, Israel and us as part of Israel 
in these days as we're here in the land, going out and helping the farmers for the harvest. We went this day to pick the sweetie fruit, got us up at 4.30 in the morning. We had to be down at the southern border at 7 a.m. And yes, it's hard work. I was sore for a week afterwards, I'll admit, but very gratifying to work together with Israelis from all over the country, retired people, teachers, professors from the university, nurses, us from around the world and everybody coming to help the farmers get in the get in the harvest. Yeah, it was all those kibbutzim, those farming villages around Gaza. They're very thriving, prosperous. The crops, the fruits, they were all coming ripe in October. It's the harvest season. And all the foreign workers, so many of them got killed or kidnapped that uh, a lot of countries pulled out, say, the Thai field workers who were helping with this. And the, the uh, kibbutz members themselves couldn't work it. They were evacuated. So many people st- uh, have been stepping in to help even t- till today. And here's some of our team out there doing it. Uh, and we just want to let you know as we close up here that we will have two uh, um, solidarity tours coming up in the, in the coming weeks if you have... Uh, uh, some free time and, and the finances to get yourself here. We have a hands-on tour from February 28th uh, to March 8th. This February 25th, David. Uh, excuse me, February 25th through March 8th. It's a hands-on serving tour that uh, we've got a variety of, of projects distributing food, picking in the fields. What else are they going to be doing? They're going to be... Uh also doing some preparing uh, food, barbecues for people coming off uh, the front line. They're going to be uh, doing working in the fields. They're going to be packing food. They have a whole, uh, a whole bunch of different uh, things that they'll be doing around the country. And traveling all around the country, and a lot of it is close to the, to the front lines of battle. But don't, don't worry, we'll keep you safe. But that's uh, 25 February through the 8th of March for that. Uh, you can find that on our website, icej.org. And we also have, just after that, an ambassador tour. It's a mix of hands-on projects, uh, touring some of the Bible sites, security briefings, touring some of the sites connected to uh, the war and October 7 massacres. It's sort of a solidarity mission hands-on tour, uh, tour uh, of the uh, the Bible sites all mixed in one from the 10th through the 16th of March. And that's at icej.org slash ambassador tour. You can sign up for that as well. So uh, we're going to uh, have to leave it there. Uh, Nicole, any closing thoughts? Well, uh, we want to uh, tell our people if they want to help fund all this, uh, it's through our Israel in Crisis Fund, icej.org forward slash crisis. Yeah, I just, yeah. It's, it's been such a privilege to be here at this time. Israel definitely needs our help in this day and in this hour. They need to hear our voices standing with them, but also just the practical help that's coming. They're so grateful for it and so appreciative and we just want to say a huge thank you to all of our friends around the world who who pray but they also do they do put practical action and they've been giving generously and they've been coming to join our hands on tour or whatever we want to continue to to do that and let israel know she's not alone
Okay, I'm putting the, uh, for those who are on our webinar right now, there is the, uh, the address icej.org forward slash crisis, or you just go to icej.org and look for the, uh, the hands-on tour and the ambassador tour. There's information and, and uh, uh, pages where you can register for either of those. Uh, we hope this has uh, helped you understand the urgency, the magnitude of the needs that are still going on. It's evolving over time. Uh, the needs are changing. But uh, I tell you, we're very proud. I have a lot of respect for Nicole in the way she goes through all the requests and really uh, um, chooses how we can use the funds that come in most effectively and really give testimony to the work that Jesus has done in our hearts for the Jewish people and really helping them recover and helping their economy, helping families stay together. It's a, a lot of challenges, but th thank you, Nicole. Bless, to, bless you and strength to you, you for joining yeah. us today. Okay. Thank you. That's our time for this week's uh, webinar, the, and uh, you can join us next Thursday at 3 o'clock as well for our ICEJ webinar series. And uh, just a reminder, at the top of the hour, at 4 o'clock Israel time, uh, we have our global prayer gathering. You can pray with Christian leaders and Christians from all over the world. We're still getting thousands of people in from more than 170 nations praying with us in this uh, ongoing prayer vigil every day over the past hundred and I think 32 days now. So God bless you. Join us for the Global Prayer Gathering. See you again next week here on the ICJ webinar series.